Welcome to La Cura Podcast. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas Coronado. La Cura will take you on a journey at the intersection of health, healing, and social justice. We will engage in conversations about decolonizing our health and reclaiming traditional ways of well-being and healing. We will explore and honor our multiple identities, cultures, traditions, and remedios. This offering is brought to you by Mi Gente, a political home of Latinx and Chicanx people that is pro-Black, pro-woman, pro-poor, pro-queer, because our communities are all that and more. So excited to have Susana Barkataki with me today. I have been wanting to actually talk about yoga the last few seasons and I just felt like there wasn't the right person to talk to yoga about. I um, definitely wanted someone who can really speak to it, speak to its roots, and also who was connected to it beyond, you know, beyond the training, but more ancestrally connected to it. So I am super excited to talk to Susanna today. Susanna and I actually go way back, uh, probably about what, 17 years. That's a really long time. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> we still look the same. Amazing, of course, living our best lives. <laughs> Susanna actually was known when I first met her as like a superstar teacher, mentor to these young women that I met in 2003. One of them is Carla Gonzalez and the other is Patrice Colors. And they are doing amazing things now. And I want to say that it really makes a huge difference to have amazing teachers. And uh, Susanna and I were just laughing about how we're around the same age and how, um, you know, she was teaching when I met her and then became just this you know, awesome activist that plugged into a lot of the work that we were doing at the organization that we were at at that at that time. And and now it's like a best-selling author, which we're going to talk about. Congratulations. It's super exciting. Thank you. A little bit about Susana. Um, and sorry, I, I give your name a little bit of a, a Spanish it's accent. It's beautiful. No, I love it. Um, <laughs> She is an Indian yoga practitioner in the Hatha yoga traditions. She uh, helps lead with yoga, and she's the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute, and she is a yoga unity activist, yoga trainer. She also has a formal education in philosophy in, with honors from UC Berkeley and a master's in education from Cambridge college and it's just all around amazing and like I said she is the author of now the best-selling book Embrace Yoga's Roots Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. What does that feel like Susanna to be a best-selling author? Oh my goodness it's pretty incredible especially to have a book on yoga and social justice written by a woman of color be a bestseller. You know, I think it's a, it's for me, it's like a historic experience and it's about me, but it's also way, way bigger and way beyond me. So, on that level, I'm really, really honored and grateful and proud. And uh, also, like, there's millions of yoga mm -hmm. practitioners. Yep. Right. And 
I don't know why they're not all buy, like buying, reading shit. Like I want this this message in this book to be everywhere. So at the same time as I'm really excited, I'm like, come on, you know, we need to hear from more and more and more people. That's the thing I was thinking about last night, and then early this morning as I was like thinking through this conversation I want to have with you, it was like everybody knows yoga. Mm. Everybody, they might not. They might have not taken a class. They might have. They might not be an instructor, but yoga is just—it's just known, right? I remember my my daughter, who's only one and a half, was like doing some, whatever, just being silly on the floor and lifting her leg, and and my mom, who like barely, like really doesn't speak English, was like, "Estás haciendo yoga?" And <laughs> she's like, "Are you doing yoga?" And so I had a moment of like, "Really, yoga is everywhere, no, and everybody is." semi-familiar with it. Yeah, it's so true. And what's so incredible to me is that yoga is a practice that's been around for thousands of years, formed, codified, developed, organized by brown and black people, right? For thousands of years, passed down orally. And that today it's it's our people, you know, like your daughter, me, my family, who when I talk to them, they're like, oh, I couldn't go to a yoga studio. I don't belong or I don't fit in or it's not for me. And so that for me is like, it's so wrong. It's so wrong that what we think of as yoga today is this exclusive white, you know, cisgender, heteronormative, like thin, ableist, classist practice. That's not what yoga was. It's actually a practice of liberation and it's a practice of mind, body, and spirit. You don't have to be, you know, a, flexible. You don't have to look a certain way or have certainly not have any certain type of clothing to do yoga. So it really is a liberatory practice that should be available to all. And there's so much in this book. It truly is to me a political intervention and also a historical contribution that feels deeply spiritual and also very practical for for those that are looking for a political guide, right, in a lot of ways that can honor the tradition. And I'd love to ground us first and foremost, I guess you've you've named a lot of what yoga is. I read in your book that it could be as young as 2,500 years, but also Mm -hmm. as old as um, Mm 10,000 years. And so um, that's absolutely amazing that uh, this tradition has, you know, existed this long and nourished and, and built the resiliency of so many for so long. And your book says that it is for science of physical, mental and spiritual disciplines that originate in ancient India in an oral tradition and potentially predates the Veda- Vedas. How do you say that correctly? The Vedas. Yeah, the Vedas, the Vedic knowledge. Yeah, the organ, like written um, stories or wisdom tradition that later was codified into Hinduism. So it really was an, an earth-based practice, you know, and when we actually can find clues to that in some of the poses like downward facing dog or Surya Namaskar, like sun salutations, mm-hmm. Surya means sun, Namaskar means hello. It was a practice that was connected to the earth, to the elements, to fire, water, air, space, and helping people reconnect and rebalance to those elements in themselves and in the world all around them and took inspiration from the natural world, like animals, locusts, dogs, cats, birds, you know, all of these figures show up 
in the in the shapes in the poses and so i i think a lot about that you know those early practitioners uh who would have looked you know like you like me you know very much brown folks finding ways to experience freedom in their own lives and some of them were practicing just for themselves you know but many were practicing for themselves in their community and then teaching and passing on what they had learned to try to help other people experience liberation and freedom. And so, you know, now today it's like that gets passed down, passed down, passed down. But my concern is that if we keep doing what we're doing with yoga, all of us lose out because it's going to become like in a couple hundred years just known as a fitness practice when it's so much more than a fitness practice. It's like how can we connect with our own soul? How can we act in ways that create ahimsa, care, kindness, you know, non-harm, and then ultimately liberation for ourselves and each other. A lot of these ancient earth-based traditions, I think about how much in touch you know, people are peoples with one nature that they wanted to embody, literally embody it and uh, be able to honor it. But in that piece that you were saying around this tradition of liberation, in your book, you mentioned that yoga is inherently a science of social justice that leads to liberation for ourselves and for others and collectively. And so I was just hoping you could talk a little bit more about that. I mean, it's fascinating because in its root, so yoga, a lot of people know yoga as a physical practice, but yoga has eight limbs and actually eight kind of like pillars of practice. And the very first one are ethics. So yoga ethics. So it's a whole school of how to live, how to be, how to create the good life for ourselves and our community. So right there is, you know, a first clue of uh, care. yoga cares about the polis, the, you know, state, the community. And then the next, so there's, there are the yamas, the ethics of yoga, then the niyamas, the inner codes, asana, which is the physical practice. And it goes, you know, on and on through the other five, which are like breath work, mindfulness, focus, meditation, and samadhi, bliss, or liberation or freedom. And so right at the very beginning of the path with the yamas, the ethical codes, and right at the end, liberation, you've got pretty much baked into this system, a path of personal equity and then collective equity. And so that first yama, there's five of the ethical codes. The first one that I mentioned is ahimsa. So ah is not and ahimsa is harm, not harm. And the very first code of of a yoga practitioner is non-harm to oneself, but also non-harm to others. And it's part of a yogi or yoga practitioner's duty and purpose to make sure that everyone else has access to that same possibility of liberation that they do. So right there is like, well, if there's oppression, if there's, you know, someone is being held down in some way, they're not able to practice this path of liberation. So yoga right built into its structure 
is a path of, of liberation. And then there's stories, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is a text, uh, a big, it's a small section of the Mahabharata, which is a big story of a war and kind of a fight for justice, a group of people fighting for justice against an evil demon and takeover. And so in that story, the main characters, the small section that the Bhagavad Gita is, there's the main character, Arjuna, who is fighting for what is right. And in it, you know, the teacher who's named Krishna, who's a god, but also just like could be seen as one's own inner wisdom, you know, um, depending on how you look at it. Krishna says, do every action you must do, but do not be attached to your actions fruits. This skill in action is yoga. And so he's telling Arjuna to fight, that he can't sit on the sidelines. He can't let the oppression happen, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's sad. Uh, he must do what he is here to do. And so that as well right there is like we have to stand up to injustice if if we're to practice. The yoga as it has been defined and practiced in the West is literally just, it feels mechanical and it feels like it's just like the quote unquote poses and it's so stripped, like you said, it's sterilized of, and there's so much, I think you called it spiritual bypassing of all this, in some ways, like moral lessons that can be a guide on how to live. So even if, honestly, even if I never stepped anywhere to personally with my physical body do yoga, if I chose to live by these ethics. And if I chose to live by these, you know, universal truths, in my opinion, then I would, I could still be living in my purpose as a human in this world. And that is amazingly beautiful. And also unfortunate that is sort of been stripped away from, from the current practice. It's not an accident. The reason that we miss all the other philosophical parts and spiritual parts of yoga in the West is because the British and the colonizing powers and then America, you know, and Americans, white folks could not see this philosophy and ethical practice as what it was. They, they could only see it, you know, they couldn't actually, in the field of yogic studies and yoga philosophy. Up until now, they've called yoga a religion. Well, it's not actually a religion. Anyone can practice it. It is a moral philosophy. And exactly like you say, a way of life that can take us deeper on a faith path if we're on a, our own faith path. But um, also one can be an atheist and practice yoga. It doesn't really matter uh, what you believe. It's more about exactly like that personal sovereignty and personal freedom. And you know, it's interesting when you say, even if you never step foot like in a studio, I don't love practicing in studios, right? I'm, you know, a small, somewhat inflexible, uh, very brown person. And I don't feel welcome in a lot of yoga studios and spaces. And so what I do is I seek to practice where I do feel welcome. And more and more, I think we have this movement of people, South Asian people, but also just people of color 
claiming and reclaiming yoga as like, I belong here. This is a practice that is for me and it can bring liberation and freedom to me and my people. And so I practice like outside under trees with an amazing black yoga practitioner here in Orlando. And now there's so many people online that we can seek out who bring a whole different framing, you know, a more philosophical or more spiritual framing and, and also who look like us. And frankly, that's what needs to happen is the practice needs a revolution in the West. So it looks more like what it used to look like and uh, more of us have access to it. Yeah. I mean, those are all the reasons why I never really went to one, uh, to a studio. Uh, you know, I remember one of my fellow like friends, comrades, organizers, the organization that I worked at would volunteer literally doing cleaning for like an hour after class, which is, I mean, it's good to contribute to any community you're a part of, but this was a very, I don't know, it just felt somewhat exploitative <laughs> um, in order for her, like she had to clean up around the studio in order to receive a discount for yoga classes, which were completely inaccessible uh, for her as an organizer, as a movement builder. And she loved it, obviously it was very nourishing for her, her body, her mind, but, you know, but yeah, that was the only way that she could do it. And, and I, you know, I was glad that, that she could, but it's like you said, not accessible either to folks like her or even the community that we were working with in, in LA who were bus riders. And your book names uh, some of the Western, like the West's fascination i don't know if that's the word you use with like orientalism and the east and asian cultures dating back to the 1600s uh so there's also some of that there's both like colonization and there's both this like you know white uh fascination with with um with the east and its culture and so i'm just curious what what are some of the key elements that you know, got us to this place or this point, current moment that again led to this alarming sterilization, glamorization, and just body centered yoga practice here in a place like the United States. That experience for your colleague, it's so heartbreaking because it's a form of karma capitalism, which happens all over yoga spaces where they use the ideas, the spiritual ideas, oh, it's so good for you, you should serve, right? And and studios exploit people, usually it's women and it's often women of color, for their own benefit while telling them that they're getting a spiritual teaching or, or access to something that they would never have access to. It's, it's so corrupt and so problematic. And since in the last few years, there's been a number of unions that have come up and that have been organizing to stop that kind of exploitation in this field because it's quite common and quite rampant. And it really, it shouldn't happen. You know, um, there should be equity and justice practices in place to make as, you know, every yoga space more accessible uh, for, for whoever would like to access it. So how did we get to where we are? I mean, I think it definitely a big part of it is colonization and Britain and, and Holland and, you know, other, other, all of the colonizing powers who went through India and saw the natural resources, the uh, material wealth, the 
you know, all of the wisdom as well, like the, the spiritual knowledge and saw all of that as something simply to take or to exploit and to control without regard for the people from who those practices or those resources came and also without regard for the practices themselves. So they simplified them. They made them fit their worldview in terms of the spiritual practices like yoga and, and other practices as well. Meditation would be another one. And then all of that, you know, through the British Raj, which was, so first it was just economic control of India. Then it was um, political for 200 more years. So 200 of economic, about approximately 200 of political control. And under the political control of India and Indians by the British, there was a story, and the story is a familiar one, where the oppressed were told they were less than, they were dehumanized, they were called weak, you know, and, and all of those things. And so Indian yogis and yoga practitioners, one, in the early days under the economic rule, they actually fought back. And they would essentially throw like a spanner in the in the mechanism of empire and disrupt trade routes, block trains, you know, the British trains. Um, so the yogis were taking up arms. Um, and that I want to note that because ahimsa, sometimes we think it means you have to be completely passive. And they they obviously showed i mean i'm sure there were there were many yoga practitioners who were passive but there were many who took the stance of they are harming us uh mortally so we will intervene with their their roots and their modes of doing that and so that was one disruption that was suppressed um in general by the, the laws and so yoga and ayurveda were the ayurveda is a sister science to yoga that focuses on well-being and health so it's like the health practice to or sibling science sorry um don't mean to gender that uh and so they both of those practices were were outlawed by on the the British legal books, and so then under that rule, Indians said, "Well, we're going to take back this practice." Many Indian teachers, um, including Krishnamacharya, and made it very physical. If oh, you say we're weak, we're going to show you how strong and how capable we are. And so they really played up the physical part of yoga practice under. British domination, um, in part to counter that um, effeminization of the the male and the body, like the Indian body, and then also because it fit with the Western focus on gymnastics and health and all of those things. And so when all of that came together and then came to the West, uh, which first was was in Boston and then later in Los Angeles, the philosophy and the spirituality came but also what came was this focus on the body. And that dovetailed perfectly with, in Los Angeles, the emphasis on uh, how people look, physical fitness. You know, a lot of the early adopters were white movie stars or people adjacent to the movie industry in Los Angeles. And so it was kind of this colonial impact, I would say, or colonial trauma of a response, a reaction, and then that meeting the hyper body focused and physically focused culture uh, in the West, in particular in Los Angeles. And then that grew and spread and spread and spread. Wow. That is so fascinating. So it's a very complex story. And at the same time, it's like a story of resilience. Um, I think the piece that you named about folks really wanting to 
you know, show, be able to, to really rise up um, against the empire and all the other European forces and be able to utilize uh, maybe the the physical part of it. So it's, it's a story of resilience that obviously then colonization comes along and um, strips and takes and then sells back. But, but yeah, and I had no idea that I was like in Los Angeles where this was kind of like the beginning of a lot. Um, that makes a lot of sense now, given how wildly popular yoga is in Los Angeles. Um, I'm sure it's in a lot of places, but it's, it's a, a lot, lot, right? It's a lot. <laughs> and it wasn't something I ever felt welcome to do, you know, and that, like, I really want to say for folks listening, if you're feeling like I hear you and I get this and it's not for me, um, my my invitation is like, well, maybe you just haven't found the right teacher and the right space, you know, because the practice is for you. The practice really, like I think about Gandhi and who is a controversial figure and very problematic, but but he was working alongside other nonviolent activists to practice uh, freeing the Indian's own mind of the oppression of inferiority. And so he and they were actually using yogic practices of self-rule, of sovereignty. And through those practices, that was in part what helped get all, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of Indians to protest and to do the salt marches, to um, burn, you know, the past, like all of the different things that they did to throw off the mechanisms of empire, that was only possible because of a switch in internal uh, belief that they were less than. Two, that they there was no reason for the British to rule them. And so they called it Swaraj, self-swaraj rule. And that is literally what in the Bhagavad Gita and, and other yogic texts it is teaching is how to experience self-rule. And so that too, it's been, yoga has been this um, pathway to liberation at different p- points in Indian and, and even here in the U.S., some of that theory influenced Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And even I would say to some extent, the Black Lives Matter movement today, you know, it's, it's a kind of path or philosophy for personal and social change that's incredibly useful. And so my invitation is to, to give it a, another try with a teacher that you feel, you know, maybe one that looks like you or feels like you or, you know, is is doing yoga in Espanol or that's trauma-informed, that's uh, accessible for folks in all different body experiences, for folks with disabilities. There, there are teachers out there now and there are spaces out there now online, in person, that hopefully are more and more going to make it accessible and more liberatory for all of us. Absolutely. And I'm super excited to, with this new understanding, to also be able to, to experience um, yoga by somebody that you're describing, whoever that person is out there. terms of like this serious you know cultural appropriation in the west i think folks probably listening would be like well i also want to make sure that i'm not culturally appropriating if i'm practicing if i'm going out there and like you know practicing yoga with somebody who does look like me and who is more informed and more respectful and so you name two things that 
power and dominance and then emotional and psychological harm as like the two uh, things that appropriation does involve. And I'm, I'm just curious for those folks that are asking themselves out there, like, Oh, I want to do it, but I want to make sure that I'm appreciating and not appropriating. So I just wanted to um, see if you could speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. So cultural appropriation is like taking something right from a culture that's not one's own. And it always involves privilege and then that power imbalance and harm to the source culture. And that harm can be disrespectful Like, for example, putting a deity or a sacred symbol like Om. I've seen some studios that have the Om symbol on like the park parking spaces, which is so disrespectful. Or even on a yoga mat, because we wouldn't in in Indian culture, you wouldn't put an Om symbol on the floor or under your feet. You hold it up, you know, to in high esteem. And so you might not know that, right? (laughs) And and you can't be expected to know everything about a different a culture that that is different than yours and and that's okay. And so I would say really it's it's like being mindful and kind of connecting to the culture of yoga from within maybe a teacher who is connected to that to the practice a little bit more or asking your teacher if you have one or looking to see are they using the traditional words, like the Sanskrit words, um, are they being respectful of the practice? And if you find out, oh, this doesn't feel right, or this is inappropriate, you know, will they be open to feedback? Will they shift? Um, That's what I look for. And then also, you know, harm Harm really happens. Yoga is a, it's like complete in and of itself, right? It doesn't need add ons like goat yoga or rage yoga or beer yoga or chocolate yoga or, you know, all these other things that like it's pretty, I think we can kind of tell when things are being appropriated because often appropriation goes hand in hand with capitalism. And so, you know, some of the like the teachers that I know and love, they all have sliding scale or they have a scholarship process, right? That it's not going to be inaccessible. It'll be accessible and it won't be like glamorized or like yoga and this. It'll just be, you know, come to yoga class and where we'll breathe and we'll practice and we'll move. And, um, and so that's what I look for when I look for a teacher is, you know, what are, how are they describing? And then how are they working with the source culture uh, because I love, I have many teachers who I love who are not South Asian. Uh, you know, I don't personally believe someone needs to be Indian to teach. I don't think that's true at all. I think folks of all different backgrounds can teach. I'm more concerned with, are they respecting the roots? And um, and so many are because those roots are about liberation. Those roots are about freedom and so when I go to someone's class and they're helping guide me into my own place of peace and my own empowerment and cueing me in a way that makes me feel good, like saying things like, there's no right way to do this pose, take it in a way that works for you, focus on your breath, you know, things that bring me back to my own sensations and experience, then I feel like the practice is being respected. Um, And I love it when people bring in yoga philosophy or other aspects, kind of the deeper aspects of yoga as well, because that expands my and other people's knowledge. And that's a beautiful part. That's yana yoga, the the yoga of wisdom. So it's really something to just explore and be okay with maybe not getting it right all the time, but, um, but knowing that 
we're doing our part to balance power and to try to repair harm if and when it does happen. Are four key steps to deepen yoga practice that you name uh, to increase empathy and to create the unity that is kind of like the heart of of yoga. Um, you name them as separation, reflection, reconnection, and liberation. And I was hoping you could say a little bit about about them. These sections, and as a teacher, I think a lot about how to understand something and work with something by breaking it down into parts. And so separation is like, well, let's look at all the problems that exist. So how do we get to some of what we've talked about? How do we get to this point where there's so much separation, where there's so many people who feel not welcome in yoga spaces in the West? And then the next reflection, we reflect on our part in that. So where are we? You know, it's not a book just for folks of privilege. It's a book for folks who have been marginalized as well. And looking at what, where can we step forward? Where can we move in? Where can we take up more space? And what might we need to do that? And then reconnection through action, taking specific action steps. Like there's a letter that you can use to send to like an all white yoga event, which you can modify for any, you know, kind of event and be like, where are the folks of color and why are they not here? Can I recommend, you know, X, Y, Z person? So a way of, of taking action on the things we've now learned. And then liberation, going deeper into the practices of yoga to bring us to personal and social connection and freedom. And I saw each section is really like a workbook, you know, something that you can come back to again and again and pick up, put down, write in, dog ear. There's reflection questions at the end of each section. And it's it's one of those books that invites inquiry and is more of like an experience or a journal as well as an informational book. You can learn more about Susana at susanabarkataki.com. You can also learn more about her institute at ignitebewell.com. Follow her on IG at Susana Barkataki. For this week's Mystica y Medicina, I want to share a practice from Deb Dana, clinician, consultant, and expert. I've been learning a lot about my nervous system and everyone's through reading her work. Our nervous system is infinitely wise and we are wired for safety. Safety is why we fight run away or freeze when we feel threatened emotionally or physically. Seeking safety is also why we build connection and community. Unfortunately, in a world that often is and feels so incredibly unsafe, we go into these survival mechanisms ongoingly and oftentimes do not know how to regulate back into safety emotionally. I want to share today a practice that could help anchor you back to a sense of safety long after the real or perceived moment of threat has passed. Take a pen and a paper and answer the following. Who? Reflect on the people in your life and make a list of those who bring you a feeling of being safe and welcomed. It can also be people who are no longer living, people that you might have not even met, but who bring you hope, inspiration, trust, 
They can even be spiritual figures. You can reach out to these people or you can just think of them to help ground you back into a feeling of safety. Think about what you do that brings you a sense of safety and belonging and connection. Look for small actions that feel nourishing and inviting to connection. Keep track of things that bring moments or micro moments of safety and connection. It could be sitting and breathing, maybe stretching, maybe laying down, maybe a prayer, maybe uh, practice jumping, dancing, singing, skipping, a place. Those things that might move energy and get you back to grounding. Where? Take a tour of your world and find the physical places that bring you cues of safety. Look around your home, your neighborhood, your community, your workplace, a place you feel a spiritual connection to. Bring to mind the everyday place you move through. Take note of the environment and name the ones that activate your grounding. When, identify the moments in time when you feel anchored in grounding energy. Take a moment and go back and revisit those experiences. Bring them into your conscious awareness. And you can even write them down. Is it when you are in the community, maybe hanging out with a friend you love and appreciate? Perhaps when you feel the most in your groove with work or play? You can create a portfolio of these things. Maybe illustrate them. Maybe put them on sticky notes around your house or on your phone as reminders that pop up daily. Experiment and find the way that works for you. But the most important thing is that you have easy access to these anchors. La Cura is a donor-supported free resource. To continue our work and ensure we launch another season and many more after that, we are raising $5,000 by May 25th. I know we can do it together. Can you pitch in and make sure we continue our journey at the intersections of health, healing, and collective transformation? Thank you in advance for your support. We'll send you virtual offerings in our donors-only newsletter to support your journey in your communities. Join me at mihente.net forward slash la cura. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, edited by Lourdes Hernandez. A very special thanks to Phil Circus for all his support and guidance on all aspects of production of this new season for La Cura. Thank you, Phil. <laughs>